I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, good evening. Um, thanks to everyone for coming. Um, I'm just going to give a tiny uh, brief introduction uh, to Sheila. Um, her first book was called The Middle Stories um, and is a book um, of, I suppose, contemporary fairy tales. It was followed by Tickner. Um, and then, almost like, How Should a Person Be? And The Chairs Are Where the People Go, um, roughly at the same time. Um, so there's something else I quite want to talk to you about later, which is also she, um, I don't know if you still do this, that you did a lecture series. Um, and so I quite like to talk about these other activities and also that she's the interview editor for The Believer, um, in which capacity she recently interviewed me for the blog. And so I'm seeing this as my revenge um, <laughs> to ask her equally difficult questions. Um, uh, so what we thought was we start with um, a reading, um, which Sheila has chosen. Um, and, um, That's not true. <laughs> Um, from how should a person be and then we'll go into the conversation yeah so um, we chose this reading together because this um, there's a bunch of the themes uh, in our discussion are reflected in these pages so I'm going to read something from the beginning one of the opening chapters and something near the end but as you can see they're they're quite connected um, okay so th this begins on page 23 mm. I had lived with one man before my husband, my high school boyfriend, the first man I truly loved. We thought we would be together forever, or if we separated, that we would return to one another in the end. Before we moved in together, we lived down the hall from each other, on the second floor of a crummy rooming house in tiny separate rooms. He sat at his desk and wrote plays, while I sat at my desk and wrote plays too. One evening, spying outside my door, he heard me talking on the phone with a friend about how I had a crush on a photographer in New York and thought it would be exciting to be with him. The photographer had invited me to live with him there as his girlfriend and assistant. He had taken some flattering pictures of me before leaving his home in Toronto, and I still thought about him a bit sometimes. My boyfriend, feeling hurt and jealous and betrayed, that night stole my computer from my room as I was sleeping and wrote on it till dawn, then returned it to my desk before I woke. When I got up the next morning, I found there on the screen an outline for a play about my life, how it would unfold decade by decade. Reading it compulsively as the sun came up in the window behind me, I grew incredibly scared. Tears rolled down my cheeks as I absorbed the terrible picture he had painted of my life, vivid and vile and filled with everything his heart and mind knew would hurt me best. In the story, my desire to be with a photographer in New York started me on a path of chasing one fruitless prospect after the next, always dissatisfied, heading farther and farther away from the good, picking up men and dropping them. While my boyfriend rose in prestige and power, a loving family growing around him, I marched on toward my shriveled, horrible perversion of an end, my everlasting seeking leaving me ever more loveless and alone. In the final scene, I kneeled in a dumpster, a used-up whore, toothless, with a pussy as sour as sour milk, weakly giving a Nazi a blowjob, 
the final bit of love I could squeeze from the world. I asked the Nazi, the last bubble of hope in my heart floating up, are you mine? To which he replied, sure, baby, then turned around and, using his hand, cruelly stuck my nose in his hairy ass and shat. The end. I tried to forget his play, but I could not, and the more I pressed it away, the more it seared itself into my heart. It lodged inside me like a seed that I was already watching take root and grow into my life. The conviction in its every line haunted me. I was sure he could see my insides as he was the first man who had loved me. I was determined to act in such a way as to erase the fate of the play, to bury far from my heart the rotting seed he had discovered or planted there. What power a girl can have over a boy to make him write such things, and what power a boy can have over a girl to make her believe he has seen her fate. We don't know the effects we have on each other, but we have them. Um, <clears throat> then about 250 pages go by, and at this point in the book, um, Sheila's had this uh, very intense relationship with her friend Margot and um, has been trying to write a play and a whole bunch of other things have gone on, including this uh, love affair with a character named Israel who's sort of domineering and um, perhaps sadistic in some way. And uh, Sheila's been out of the city but and hasn't seen him in a while and she comes back and finally meets him for a drink after he sent her some emails telling her to do this and do that and um, so they're out for drinks. As we were finishing our second drink, he said, should we go? So we left. I couldn't tell if I loved him or liked him or if I felt nothing at all. We got in the cab, his idea, and soon we were back in my apartment. I paid. We went into my bedroom, then I excused myself to use the bathroom. When I returned to the bedroom, he pulled off all my clothes, then he took off his clothes. Looking at him, his belly was softer, his legs seemed stout. When he smiled, it did not make me feel special or strange. There was a vacancy in our touch, a deep well of nothing. Whatever bright thing had existed between us had left and moved on to other people. I made out with his penis until the moment came that he might fuck me. He was on top of me as I lay on my back. Then he hesitated and said, maybe I shouldn't. Okay. I did not know why he said it or if he would want to in ten minutes or in the morning or next week or never again. We lay silently in my bed and then my body felt it, deep and calm, what I wanted to do, something I had never done before. Without letting myself think about it a moment longer, I shuffled down beneath the covers, saying to him as I did it, I want to sleep beside your cock. I slithered down and lay there, my lips soft up against his dick. I felt his legs grow tense. Get up, he said. No, come on up here, he said, more forcefully this time. But I knew that if I did, his desire for me might remain, and I wanted none of it left. I had to be so ugly that the humiliation I brought on myself would humiliate him, too. I would have to strip every last filament of gold from my skin, all the gold I had put there, and strip the gold from his skin, so that none of the gold on him would reflect onto me, and so none of the gold on me would reflect onto him, so we would be in utter darkness together. I curled myself around his legs. I knew he'd never understand why I was doing it, that he was misunderstanding what I meant, but I didn't care if he got me wrong. The way he saw me was not the same thing as me. I felt so alert as I felt his dick shrink away, disgusted or ashamed. A few minutes passed. Then he turned his back on me. My nose went into his ass, and I felt its tiny hairs on my skin. A heat blanched my cheeks and my soul, but I remained there stoic. 
I had gone down, gone under, and when several minutes later I surfaced from beneath the hot, stuffy sheets, it felt truly like I was emerging into a new world entirely. Israel kept his back turned. We did not speak for the rest of the night. The next morning I lay calmly on my side of the bed and watched as he stood in the middle of my room and dressed. After buttoning his shirt, he looked down into his shirt pocket and pulled out a quarter. He placed it on the windowsill beside my head with real deliberateness, then turned and walked away. I glanced out the window into the bright day. What I had done in the night, it felt like a, it was the first choice I had ever made, not in the hopes of being admired. I had not done it to please him, it was not to win someone's regard. Then from inside of me came a real happiness, a clarity and an opening up, like I was floating upward to the heavens. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, I, one of the reasons we wanted to read that passage is there are certain themes there that I'm hoping we'll come back to. But um, for the moment, I want to ask a very simple, practical question, um, which is about drafting. Because um, I know that this book came out in Canada and then in a slightly different form um, in the American edition. And then I'm, is the British edition different? No, it's Not the same as the American one. Um, and so are you, um, I mean, was that, is that something you always wanted to do, was to revise books? Is that something you like doing? Or is it, is, is dra how much is drafting kind of part of your writing process? Um, well, with this book, I didn't, have a, I didn't have an image of what kind of book I wanted it to be when I began. And so usually um, you feel like a book is done when it sort of looks like you wanted it to look. And with this book, I didn't have that picture at all the whole time. So... Um, when it came out in Canada, I kind of had a finish the feeling that it was unfinished, mm -hmm. but I thought that's just the way this book has to feel because I don't have that you know, platonic form of the book um, in my head. And then a funny thing happened when it was going to be published in the States about a year and a half later, I realized, oh, I know what I want to do and to finish it. And I felt like I could finish it. And I, I just made some, you know, I added uh, probably 10% to the book and moved things around and finished it. So I, and then I did have that feeling that it was done. So but I sort of feel like I needed to see it in book form for me to be able to objectify it and like separate it enough from the six years of thinking about it that yeah. I had done. But in terms of on my computer drafts, like there are, there's no such thing as drafts anymore, right? You're just constantly <laughs> like rewriting the same pages and adding. And can, is, is there any, could you give one example? What did you add? Like, was there a kind of thematic uh, kind of symmetry to all these things or was it very different what you were adding? Um... It, there wasn't a th there weren't thematic things that I added. I think that it just it was like it was slumped, and I just like made it stand up or something. Like I just added more. I think there were things that I were I was afraid to sort of say outright. Um, like there's a little bit more stuff about the marriage at the beginning in in the rewrite because uh, it, I felt like that would explain a little bit more why this how should a person be question was was being asked and was okay. so important. Yeah. Yeah. And then I made the I drew the end out longer, so it didn't end so abruptly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think partly why I'm interested in is because I feel like on the one hand this book has this gorgeous kind of slouchiness to it, um, which I think is partly a trick of rhythm because there is a way in which there's quite a tight structure I think to it um, formally. Um, and so there were a couple of things I wanted to like. Um, I should maybe explain the first time I got in touch with Sheila was because I was editing a guest editing an issue of McSweeney's that was going to be full of translations um, and within about five minutes I got an email back from Sheila saying yes and also sending me um, a draft of a, a translation of Faust uh, which I wasn't quite expecting uh, so, <laughs> so fast um, and 
it was I think if I hadn't if that hadn't happened I might not have thought this but it suddenly struck me that Faust is behind this novel slightly that um there's this recurring misprint of soul for sold um and there are moments where it feels like the Sheila character is being tempted along the way like kind of a, is that completely insane of me or is there a sort of structure there yeah it's not completely insane um I I, I love the Faust story and um the idea that you, I mean, Faust sort of sells his soul, but not for something silly or frivolous, for knowledge and, and for all the things that, uh, uh, you know, that are legitimate to want, you know. And I, I feel like the Sheila character and even myself this wants an answer to this question, how should a person be? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's yeah. a ethical question, you know. You want the answer to it. But then um, <clears throat> I'm not sure. I, I guess on the journey... Uh, to finding that answer, so much is sacrificed, and, and that's and that's a. But she feels she starts out feeling like she has no soul, whereas I, yeah. I think that's a, a bit different. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Um, and it's kind of I think on this mythic thing, there's a really interesting I think sort of mythic pattern underneath this. Um, and one of the themes that I was really struck by was this. There's a kind of quite overt Jewish theme that kind of um, runs through it. And again, I was slightly worried that I was just reading things in, but kind of. There are lots of motifs of sands that kind of Sheila is kind of shaking sand out of a book or wiping sand off a table. Um, and there seems to be a strong pattern of that in some way she is kind of Moses kind of leading the kind of people out of bondage in, in the desert. Um, and could you maybe talk a bit more about that pattern? Yeah, I mean, she wants to be but isn't. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, the sand, yeah, I, I saw the whole book as um, her and her friends wandering in the desert in, in, in the sense that you know, when, when Moses was in the desert with the Jews, the answer that what he was trying to do was come, well, what he gave them with the Ten Commandments was the answer for the Jews, how should a person be? I mean, that's what the Ten Commandments yeah. are. And she wants to be that kind of figure. That's the only way that she feels that she can have any, like, justify her existence and have any importance in the world is to be that kind of figure. And, of course, it's impossible and it would be ridiculous um, um, to have that sort of hope. Uh, but they don't come out of the desert in the end they don't reach the promised land there is still this feeling like um they're the damned generation because of you know the worship of the the worship of the self and i saw the worship of like our worship of the self sort of paralleling the worship of the you know golden calf and you're not supposed no. to worship false idols and and the self is a false idol and it's funny because a lot of people who criticize the book say that it's narcissistic but for me i was <laughs> really trying to criticize this idea that that worshiping of the self is going to prevent real knowledge yeah you know the same way it does for the Jews I think that's and redemption when you talk about in the passage on cheating where you kind of say cheating is to treat the self as an, as an object yeah um um and then because I, I find it interesting because i think often some of the parts which I think maybe when I first read it, I was thinking I don't. It, it suddenly fell into place. Like it's quite a long conversation with Solomon, the um, shopkeeper, the store owner. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit more about that because that seems to be quite a critical passage. Um, <laughs> like kind of, and it's something. To, there's something about the Jewish theme, and it's partly an argument about the matrilineal descent um, yeah. and kind of what how Jewishness is founded, which seems to me to be in some way obviously a question about how any moral kind of truth is founded is that something kind of in the right area or? yeah i think so i mean the there's a line that recurs in the book that margot says which is he's just another man who wants to teach me something and i i feel like that's that's where that's who the solomon character is for sheila yeah. uh you know she's 
in New York, and she wanders into his coffee shop to buy a pen and paper, and and he just won't listen to anything that she's saying. And keep trying to tell her about you know the Jews, and as though as though she has no idea about you know what questions that she has or what she wants to know. Like there's no listening, and I just I saw him as one of the fathers, you know, and yeah. and one of the things that I was thinking about when I was writing this book, and I even had like an, in an early draft, I had like an image of the you know, you kind of mock up images of your cover to make it more real to you. And I had an image of the cover where it was my father's face on a black background and an X over it. And you know, like in, in my head, in my head, it was like the book was about killing the fathers. So like, you know, killing the literary fathers and killing all, all sorts of fathers. And yeah, and where are the fathers? I mean, they talk about Margaret Mead and Margaret Mead says the, the difficulty in every civilization is how to get the fathers involved in the child rearing process. Yeah. And um and it turns out that Solomon character didn't even go to the birth of his own child because he was so um, dizzy with with the idea of being around for that. And um, so, yeah. Uh, so, which literary fathers were being killed? Um, well, I just had a feeling like this is, you know, all the novels that I had read and the kind of form of the <laughs> all novel, the all the novels I had read were being. Yeah, I didn't want to. Um, I didn't understand at that time how to read novels and enjoy it. I had like lost my ability to believe in the novel as an interesting or relevant form, you know, not for the whole world, but for me, I couldn't, I could only read like self-help books and all sorts of other kinds of forms. So, and so what do you I mean? Because the novel was too unreal? Or? Yeah, it just, it just felt like I don't care what this person's imagination came up with. And, um, the, I didn't like the conventions. I didn't like this, this made up character and I didn't, I didn't. I wasn't interested in following a story. I just wanted to be spoken to directly by the author. You know, yeah. so so fiction. I, it, I didn't understand why the artifice was there. I mean, I understand it now. I'm interested in fiction again, but at the time, I couldn't bear it. Because of course, this is kind of like it's such a difficult area. I think because evidently, however real you try and make a book, it's never kind of quite real enough. Yeah. I mean, um. I was kind of thinking, so maybe we can get on to, I remember one thing you once wrote to me was that um, Tickner is this book about a man who is kind of terrified to go out into the street um, and is kind mm -hmm. of full of feelings of self-loathing. And then I remember you saying that what you did subsequently was trying to kind of get out into the street. Yeah. Um, and so is the street the real then? Is the street the kind of... Yeah, the street's everything outside your, your studio. The, the room that you write in. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I felt. And so, could you, and maybe just, because so, I, well, I think it's really fascinating, I think, you know, one of the techniques you obviously used um, is this idea of taping conversations, um, a sort of, um, what, but my worry, I, I suppose, what I'm trying to get at is, how, how do you make that real when, once you're within the covers of a novel, is there not always a point yeah, when... Yeah, it doesn't really work. I mean, yeah. I that was that was what was so frustrating and hard for me when I was trying to edit it and, and put it together, was that, of course, you're writing a novel. I mean... Ultimately, I was writing a novel. It wasn't um, the kind of art that I was enjoying at the time, which is, you know, um, like Tino Segal-like stuff where you're actually interacting with humans and there is no object and it's you're out in the world and it's an intervention in life. I mean, yeah. um, I was thinking a lot about Richard Serra and his um, taking sculpture off the pedestal. Yeah. So instead of seeing a work of art as uh, something that you go into a museum to see or you go into a book and you, you, you read this book, you I, w I was interested in art that would... Um, sort of move with you as as another person might. I mean, again, like that was what I was trying to get at, but it was hard because I also wanted a narrative because I have found at a certain point, like for myself, I wasn't so interested in reading all the way through it if it didn't have that 
forward propulsion. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a hard balance to try to get yeah, the real and the the fake and because I think actually think talking about I think it was making it was when I was thinking about the kind of revising of this book and I was remembering the, an artist I like a lot, Philippe Pereno, who also kind of works with chore the kind of choreographing situations and um, and he has a lovely thing in one of his interviews with um, Hans-Ulrich Oberst where he says, I wish more art was just always existing in post-production. That for me, like, kind of, I don't see why there's this obsession with the, just the finished thing that kind of I would like to tinker with it all the time. Yeah. And that often the most interesting works are kind of overflowing slightly like that. Um, but, it's, but to again get back to this issue of the real, so obviously one of the things that is most striking is that there is a character called Sheila. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not interested in some kind of whatever the correspondence would be. What I'm interested in is for the novelist or the writer, what's the use, do you think, for you? I think there's two, you could have called the character Sheila Hetty. Yeah. And you didn't. And you could have not named her at all and just called her I. Yeah. Or you could have given her a name. And I'm just kind of interested in what's the... Well, I couldn't have not named her at all because there's dialogue. So you have true. to put a okay. name there. <laughs> but it wasn't that there was... Um, I didn't have a program or anything I just I was transcribing the conversations I was having with Margot and when I transcribed them I I would just said Margot da 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 Sheila da 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 I mean I was just I, yeah. it was very very early in the process and when the time came to think about sort of you know two or three years in what's this character's name going to be I tried to change it uh, I tried to change the name Sheila and it it just looked so fake to me like to see those passages where Margot and I are talking it says Margot Sheila Margot Sheila and then I tried to do, doing weird things like S J L A which is like <laughs> Sheila um and tried different things and it just it looked so stupid to me like I couldn't justify changing it it wasn't that I had a a reason for making it Sheila I just didn't have a good enough reason not to but to call it Sheila Hetty would have been going too far because it's not exactly yeah. me you know it's a character I mean and is there also like it seems to me that one of the things that I'm often interested in books is like what seems to be risked but and like it seems to me that you are upping the risk in some way by yeah. calling it Sheila yeah I have a kind of um feeling always with anything that I write that no one can really read it <laughs> like there's some way and since I can't really take in the fact that it goes into another person's mind and body so I feel pretty um I didn't think too much about the risk but Margo was nervous and Misha was nervous and he thought the book was going to ruin our lives and he kept saying that all <laughs> along this book's going to ruin our life and um and Margo was like you're crazy why are you doing this and I didn't and I, I had this feeling the whole time like it's not crazy this is what everybody does and it's sort of I, I think it's sort of true like even if you don't call your character Adam um everyone sort of has a feeling like that's your that I mean, that's your experience of the world going into the book. And yeah. even if you call it Adam or don't call it Adam, what's the – why is it so different? Um, I've got about seven different thoughts. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to go back to actually then – back to the idea of um, almost like the work that's not the work, that trying to do away with um, the novel as a form in some way. And I think – I remember also one thing we talked about was you said – that in this book you were trying to do away with style in some way, and mm -hmm. the kind of and then and you said a really interesting thing where you said and for me that freed me up to think more about the meaning. Right. And I kind of and I remember reading this email thinking that's really like I don't think I'd read it necessarily thought that style and meaning were opposites, as it were. No. Um, so could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean I don't think they're opposites, but it you know you can't think about everything all at once, and you can't think about everything equal to everything else. So with Tickner, I was really thinking about Tickner's voice. And with the middle stories, I was thinking about the style of the sentences. And it hadn't occurred to me to think about, like, why are you actually writing this? You know, what what value does it have for you or the world? It's just what I wanted to write. I'd never, I really hadn't thought about the meaning of it. Like, so, 
And I think to not think about style just gave me permission. Because if you spend a lot of time focusing on the beauty of your sentences and the style of your sentences, you can kind of actually not think about the other things like why why should I even make a why should I make yeah. this sentence and why should I make this book and follow this plot? So I it just was let I just gave myself that permission not to think about style and also because it's supposed to sound like speech. I didn't want to the more you think about it, the more literary it becomes. And the more you edit it, the more literary it becomes. So I wanted it to to stay kind of away from that kind of language. And yet it's interesting you say that you didn't you know, but it seems to me that the book it's not written in a totally colloquial no. like actually at moments I think it sounds reminiscent slightly of the middle stories that they're like the gravedigger section to me right. sounded like it could have been a mini chapter kind of mini section from the middle stories that and I don't really want to call it fairy tale because I don't think that's the right but there's a sort of mythical biblical like so th there are moments I think of like extreme grandeur in this book as well like is, I, I don't know if I have a question here but I suppose I'm questioning whether really you mean you weren't caring about the sentences I don't know. Just one of the first notes I made to myself, like in two thousand and five, I was care about this yeah. Don't think about style. I don't know. You can't not think about style, obviously, but you can tell yourself that you're not going to think about style. Yeah, because I think I thought about there's that um one of the little motifs that sort of begins and ends the book is the ugly painting competition. Yeah. Um, and there's a very interesting moment towards the end where Sholem says to Margot, you know, you've tried to make an ugly painting, but you know your mark is still there. And this idea right. of your mark really interests me because it felt like. It felt like some smuggled thing from you as well, saying however much I've tried to like deface this and make it a non-novel or a non-work of art, you can't not kind of you know that if there there is a certain residual thing that is yours. Yeah. Um, I think so. Well, because I kind of considered the book my entry into the ugly painting competition, and so <laughs> um, like I was, yeah, I hope that it, like Margot, something something would remain that was mine, and but yeah, like yeah. you say, would have my mark and would be beautiful. Despite um, the ugliness. Um, which I think, because I think one thing that I found interesting here was reading this book is the aesthetic questions, as it were, of kind of what's a style or kind of how can you make a work of art that's not a work of art. They're, very, they're basically identical to the ethical questions of what's a person and how can you... Um, I think what I was kind of trying to get at is, do you think the aesthetic questions are kind of the same? Do you think there's a difference between them? Between the aesthetic and the ethical? And the ethical, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess because she wants to be the perfect person and she wants to be beautiful and she, I mean, this is not just a human thing. It's, I mean, it's a female thing in particular, you know, as a woman, you have to be beautiful and in so many ways and it's a constant preoccupation and you can resist it, but it, you're still resisting it. And, uh, and it's also a human thing. You want to be an ethical and good person and, and beautiful in terms of good um but i don't know i mean i think the task is to see if you can be ugly and still and, and not trespass the the good in that i mean how can yeah. i'm not exactly sure how to put it but the the point of the ugly painting competition where margot's painting ends up being beautiful despite her trying to make something ugly i think is the way to beauty rather than trying to be an ideal you know, because that ends up being ugly. I mean, just the same way that Sheila marries in order to be an ideal and then ends up, but it's actually the point where she does the ugliest possible thing to her, you know, and the most humiliating, disgusting thing that she actually yeah. feels this feeling of transcendence. And I think that that's, that's the way to the good and to the beautiful, you know, is, is going into the, the darkness and into one's most feared fate. Yeah, and I think this is, I suppose, partly why I was interested in you reading that passage, and it slightly links to 
this question of Sheila, as it were, is are there were there like is there a link in your head between almost ugliness and shame, like kind of the the shameful yeah. things? Is, yeah, I think so. Not in your head. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, um, I was kind of no, because I was thinking one of the things that I think is very interesting about writing though is that I think I'm, my question I think really was would it be worse to be stupid than ugly in a work of art? Uh, I'd be much more worried of yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> like or boring because you talk about the boring like there's a moment where the Sheila says you know boring can be useful or kind of good yeah I mean I think moments of boring but to be completely boring in a work of art <laughs> why would anyone go to the next page I mean I, I believe in and the value of entertaining like that's what draws you through right yeah yeah otherwise you're Andy Warhol and you write a yeah <laughs> um uh one of the things that we first talked about um, and that you ended up translating for me was it was a it was a story by Kierkegaard and mm. I, I was just thinking about this because you know you t- this kind of question of the ethical and the aesthetic uh, it seemed to me that there is a dialogue there is he one of the literary fathers especially because I feel like either or is in the background of this book yeah um, this philosophical work based on basically whether you should get married and there's a kind of yeah is there a similarity there? Yeah, he wouldn't be one of the fathers I was trying to kill at all, because okay. I love Kierkegaard. So we're trying to save Kierkegaard. But I, I was reading him at the time that, well, I mean, I'll be personal, but at the time that I, uh, things weren't going so well and my marriage was sort of falling apart, I, I went to Montreal and I brought either or with me. And I read that that part, of, you know, the the passage about the the beautiful and ethical life being the life in which... I mean, marriage is the perfect expression of the ethical life because the duty is to love and love creates the duty. I love that circular thing. And and he convinced me to stay married and be married and that it was good. <laughs> but then, of course, you know. That- There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kierkegaard's not going to keep you married, so that didn't really work. But it worked in my head for for a while. While I was in another city, I was like, "Yes, I'm so married and um, so ethical." But uh, when I went back, it's just actually two people in a room. You know, <laughs> doesn't matter how good Kierkegaard is. Um, but uh, I mean, I, yeah, I think I'm not sure what your question was, but I think the question is partly what I'm interested in. Really, is the it strikes me that there is thematic similarity, partly also this play with the, with the eye, with the self, you know, that he so loved using pseudonyms and kind of... Right, yeah, it's um, one of the fathers. That there is a kind of... Um, um, on the question of, like, one thing that interests me is that you've, you know, you do these interviews for The Believer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of... I started to wonder, is there a contradiction there? Because if one of the things you're kind of obviously interested in is this culture's maybe worship of the self and kind of um and I think one of the problems actually of being an artist that maybe we'll get to is the problem that you're so often then talking about your own art and then the link between the, there's very little space left between what you do as an artist and then how you have to talk about it. Um why do you why do you enjoy doing interviews? Um I think it was one of the first literary forms that I ever loved. Like the Paris Review interviews were something that I, I read a lot when I was a teenager. And it, 
uh, I just like the form. I like hearing somebody speak for themselves. I like how everyone speaks differently, and I love character. And I think for me, the novel is about character more than plot. I love I love humans. And when I re when I do an interview, also I kind of am a failed playwright in some way. Like I wanted to be a playwright, and it didn't work out, and I couldn't figure that out for myself. But doing interviews is kind of like a little play. I mean, you interview someone, you have your transcript there, and you I move things around. I edit a lot, and I I like. I like it as an interaction between two people and, and um, I don't know, I like the revelation of character. I don't care really what they exactly say about their art, I just like to see the human there. Yeah, Cause I, so you don't think there's a danger? I'm trying to think kind of, sometimes I worry that almost events like this, that you're asking the novelist to almost be too self-conscious or like... Yeah, it's hard to say, it's hard to say exactly what you think really in these kinds of situations because because you don't really have a thought it's not like you you just have a five years in which you were thinking and it came to something and those five years involved thousands of thoughts all put together yeah. and so to come and say what you were thinking is it's kind of artificial I mean I love when people can do it really well and um but you know especially when the questions are as you know good and serious as yours like yeah, it just puts me back into that state because when you're working on something, you feel mostly uncertain. You don't feel certain. Um, yeah. And and so to then come and say with certainty what you thought, it's the opposite, actually. Yeah, yeah. You didn't really you didn't really know. And <laughs> But it's nice because these are all the things that, you know, I was thinking about, but um, more as questions mm. that had to be resolved yeah, in a book. I think I'm, I'm, one of the things I feel often when I'm interviewing is – that you're simply restating the questions. That's the kind of danger. Um, <laughs> another thing I wanted to ask you is because you, um, a couple of times when we've been writing, you've mentioned Martin Buber as someone, and I felt incredibly stupid thinking I've never read any Martin Buber, and I, I think I said I would go and do that, and I didn't. Um, uh, but it struck me as it was kind of, that there, from what I know of him, I can see that there are kind of relevances to this question of the I and the self. And could you maybe talk a little bit about help me with Martin Buber? <laughs> Yeah, um, I'd like five minutes of Martin Buber. <laughs> <laughs> well, his book I and Thou was a book that was very important to me when I was in university, and um, I mean I haven't read it s since then. But I think the effect that it had on me was well, the thing actually that comes to mind is he 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 said that um, in an introduction to that book that he had written it actually. In, very very quickly and he was trying to go back and edit it as a grown man he'd written this book when he was a young man and um he said that he couldn't edit it he couldn't change a single thing in it because he knew what would be gained he could measure what would be gained by editing it but what would be lost would was immeasurable um so to me that means that more important than his thoughts was his voice. You know, he didn't want to lose the voice of the young, spontaneous man who was inspired to write this book about, you know, the fact that who we are is who we are in relation to other people. There is not an I, you know, separate from a relationship and a relationship to the divine and, you know, yeah. and, and to another. I mean, I can't tell you what what exactly it was that I took from <laughs> it, but... Um, it's one of those books that just sort of, you know, sometimes you read a book and it gets, it's, you assimilate it so much into your brain and it just, you're sort of a different yeah. person afterwards. You can't remember, oh, specifically those were the lines. But I, yeah, I mean, the idea of, of relation being the... And know. how confident are you of an I? Like, one of the things I often feel with writing is there are these terms of first person and third person and they feel so kind of concrete and it never feels like that to me 
when writing or in real life. Um, is there a kind of, I, I don't know, I'd, I think, and I'm interested that you, you know, you've collaborated, you know, this book is part, in a way a collaboration, there's the book, with, the other book with Misha. Um, how much do you see the self as a kind of self-enclosed thing? Well, I, I think that it's uh, a very sick feeling to feel like it's completely self-enclosed. And the more that, um, the more that I feel that, you know, that I am, um, I don't I don't know how to put it really because all the things that I'm thinking about right now are exactly about this question about the I. Um, I like thinking about consciousness as, as something that um, I don't I don't know like do you know the I Ching you know the Ching <laughs> this, this that book <laughs> the great uh, Chinese I, I ancient don't know book it of philosophy but yeah you I know it, yeah well uh, the idea in some ways is that you're moving through that. It's 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 the opposite of a psychoanalytic view of the world where who you are is based on what happened to you. It's more that who you are is what the moment is, what the forces in the moment are that's going on in the environment that you're in. So you change because the environment that you're in changes in some way. Or, yeah. And I, I think that's a healthier way of looking at the self rather than always being in relation to your childhood or always being in relation to your neuroses. I mean, that's such a trapped and horrible feeling that you are really so programmed to be a certain way. And I, I find like there's a lot of unhappiness in that for me but if I I mean I I love the I Ching and I've been working on this project with a friend where we're he's doing art and I'm sort of um we're trying to reinterpret it in different ways but what I like love about it is that is that you sort of move through different time periods and and you are more in relation to the to the atmosphere and to the time period than to your own psychology yeah it's, 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 so yeah that breaks down the eye in a nice way it's interesting it's reminded me of there's a lovely thing in Oliver Sacks that I was reading recently that that actually people's memories even are kind of shared, that there's a kind of way in which everyone is appropriating slightly, kind of, that there's no even guarantee that your memories are kind of literally what happened to you. Um, right. So, and I was definitely thinking this would be a, how you would do that as a novelist is quite a kind of problem. I mean, actually, it's reminded me that I think one of the questions, maybe I got to this because I think one of the questions you put to me when we were talking about this translation project was kind of, how much the eye of the novelist changes when you know like there's the eye of the writer of the of the translated text and kind of and I was kind of interested in actually since you translated Kierkegaard to both you know we both love like kind of what did it feel weird sort of appropriating Kierkegaard especially via a third language as well because you were translating from French yeah it didn't feel weird because I'm so bad at French that I just <laughs> I was just trying to get um get the rhythm down and get the you know the meaning i i mean i didn't feel i didn't feel like i was exactly channeling kierkegaard in any way i was just this a, a character kind of spontaneously sort of was created when i started translating i saw this young man who who seemed very clear to me as a well the the passage was this young literary man who wants to you know be a great writer and and uh I just saw him as a character, and so whatever I was translating was this character. It didn't feel like Kierkegaard. Okay, yeah. Was that, yeah. Um, and I think I, I think I should probably get to a, a final question soon. Um, one, I've been thinking halfway, you know, constantly through this. The one things I wanted to also bring, because it seems to me very crucial here, is um, Chris Krause's book, um, mm -hmm. I Love Dick, um, which shares a lot of kind of these concerns like about the about the use of the eye and kind of the use of real kind of people um and there's a lovely thing that i think she, i remember for that she says in that about kind of that one of the projects for women's writing will be to kind of 
frame vulnerability will be to somehow kind of reclaim vulnerability as a kind of subject. And I was kind of I, and one of the things I think I really am interested in, in in all your books is actually that there's a certain exploration of how vulnerable you can go. Right. Um, so I suppose that's partly is do you think that's roughly true? But then also it's kind of the relation to the interview again interests me of is the interview form slightly inimical to vulnerability? That it's, that, that, does it encourage does it encourage a certain kind of um, defensiveness or explanation that maybe isn't quite the same thing? Yeah, it can. I mean, there can be terrible. It, there can be that for sure in the interview. I mean, those are bad interviews and those are yeah. boring interviews, <laughs> definitely. But I yeah, I love Chris Krause and um, that book. Uh, and I mean, I never thought about it for myself, like that I'm having anything to do with vulnerability or exploring vulnerability. But just to bring it back to Trampoline Hall, which you mentioned at the beginning, which is this mm. lecture series that I run in Toronto, the format is that three people get on stage. Well, one, you know, there's three sets, and in each set, the person gives a 15 minute lecture, but it's on a subject that they're not an expert in. And I felt like that would be more interesting because if you're not an expert in the thing you're talking about, you're you are more vulnerable on stage, and you do sort of reveal your character in a way that if you're talking about something that you are an expert in and that you know and that you have the answers for you you aren't vulnerable and I wanted in the trampoline hall lectures the audience to feel a lot of empathy for the person on stage and to feel I'm like them you know and if you see somebody up there who's an expert you feel not like them but if you see somebody who's struggling over you know trying to I mean supposedly I'm an expert on my book but I'm I'm, I'm having the same kind of experience that the people that I saw at trampoline hall would have which is a real struggle with their subject and um to me, the people in the audience would then feel like they could be that person struggling on stage, you know, and I, I, I like that kind of theater. And, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't understand what a, what a performance would be without vulnerability or what art would be without that. That's how you get in by, yeah. by seeing that in somebody else or, yeah. And then, and then connecting to that. Um, on that vulnerable note, um, does anyone have uh, a question for Sheila? Time for the fight to begin. Hi. Um, it seems very unique and very special to be able to actually speak to one of your characters in a book, like call them up. Um, how do they feel about being fictionalised, at least in part? And do they have any input beyond just living near you? Um, well, everyone felt differently. Um, Shalom who's one of the characters in the book, and he didn't tell me any of his thoughts about it. He told Margot, and um, he was very, it was very generous, I thought, for him just to sort of let me do what I wanted. But with Margot, it was much more complicated because it was, she had to, she read like all, read drafts all along, and yeah, there were certain things that she told me not to do and that she, that were, she was uncomfortable with, but it wasn't the kinds of things that I thought she would be uncomfortable with. Like, there's one scene in which she's on stage and people applaud her, um, and in the book she's sort of I don't know in grade six or something when that happens and sh and she just kept telling me please take that scene out that's so humiliating I I'm gonna I, you know I'm I don't want to be the somebody that's applauded on stage um and I we fought about that for a long time because I kept trying to take it out and I kept wanting to put it in so it wasn't the kind of thing you know or in another in another part I, I sort of offhand said that she had big breasts and she's like take that out um it really upset her and I it would never have occurred to me so the funny thing to me was the things that I thought that would upset her, that I was nervous about her reading, weren't at all the things that she saw. Um, so anyways, in any case, I gave her a lot of in input. And for the most part, you know, 90% of the things that she wanted me to change, I wanted, I did change. But there was probably only 10 things ever that she wanted me to change. 
the big problem that she had with the book with an early draft was she said, you know, at one point the Sheila and Margot characters fight and then Sheila forgives Margot and Margot read the draft and she came and she was so angry at me. She said, I would never forgive you that easily. And, um, and it really, really hurt her feelings. And she, she thought that I thought that she was some kind of fool, you know, and I was trying to explain to her that it wasn't that it's just really hard to write conflict <laughs> and it's hard to write conflict resolution. It's not the way I thought of her. Um, but you know, so yeah, very strange things and interesting things occurred. Yeah. Because my character was right there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we, uh, yeah, of course it changed our relationship, but I don't really know how. I'm not sure what it would be without it, but we're very intimate and we, we can tell each other anything. And, you know, there's, you know, once you've done something like this and she had me in her movie, um, once you have that kind of real intimacy, you just lose a lot of fear. I don't think that we have any fear w with each other anymore. Yeah. And we were quite afraid of each other at the beginning. We were intimidated by each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Hello. Um, first of all, thanks very much. Um, it's really fascinating to listen to you talk. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy about the book an awful lot is female friendship. Right. Um, and female friendship is something that is productive. It's something that's culturally productive and productive oh. in all these ways. Um, so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that aspect of the book. Um, and also if you see other kinds of um, productions, novels or other kinds of art dealing with that kind of in a, in a satisfying kind of way. Um, yeah, I haven't, I mean, I guess Agnes Varda is somebody who does women and very well, I think, and, and women and, and art and creativity. She's somebody who I, who I really respect and whose work I really love, but, um, I get asked this question a bit about female friendship and it's, it's really, and I asked Margot actually last week, cause it comes up so often. I said, did I ever say those words to you in the whole time that I was working on the book? And she said, no. And it's true, I never thought about female friendship as an objective thing or something that I wanted to contend with. I really was just thinking about Margot. And I wasn't even thinking about myself and her as two females. So it's so interesting now to hear this this as being one of the themes of the book because I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, here's this human and she's so transformative to me personally. And But I like what you say about friendship being you know, culturally productive. I mean... Um, for me in the last few years, everything that I've made has been sort of in collaboration and I, I like that, I like that so much more. I feel like I, I feel like a much more happy human, um, working this way and I feel like working is so much more interesting than it was before and I always used to try to throw myself off artificially like I, when I was writing the middle stories I'd be writing and then I'd take a book down from the shelf and I'd open it and I'd see a sentence and I'd put it in you know I always wanted to be thrown off but that's so artificial compared to what another human who's always changing and challenging you brings to you know to that element of I guess improvisation you know and, res and responding in the moment. Hi. Um, I One thing that struck me when I was reading both your work and Adam's work is that you write about sex in a remarkably similar way. And I don't, I, I don't know if, either of, if that occurred to either of you while you were reading each other's works, but I would be interested to know if that did occur to you. And why, does, why doesn't Adam answer that? I'll let him and it's, a, it's the style of your writing about sex is it really unique and it's it's kind of this frank innocence <laughs> which I've never seen in anyone else besides either of your work. Frank innocence? 
I don't know how else to describe it, but it's like you're not embarrassed about it at all, and it's frank, but it's also innocent, and it's it's a note that I think is unusual. Uh, <laughs> um, it's interesting. I think when I I once wrote to you saying that I kind of had this list of things I wanted to talk about, and innocence was one of them. Um, but now I can't quite well remember why innocence came up, but maybe it was something. Um, I don't know. It didn't. I, I, it's true that I think one thing that there is there is a kind of. I think it's an interest in embarrassment and, and kind of getting over embarrassment um, and not. Yeah, and I think that. I don't know. I find this very difficult to talk about. Um, there's a kind of definitely. One thing that's interesting to me about writing is that kind of you do all the things that would be horrifying in a real conversation. Um, you know, that all the things you want in the kind of, you know, that you want people to behave appropriately and um, ob obey the rules of kind of and get, not get gruesome or kind of horrifying. Um, in writing, that's exactly what you want, you know. Um, but it's true that I think there's a kind of discourse around writing about sex that is full of kind of slightly puritanical worry and maybe there is a kind of innocence to simply just describing kind of vaguely what happens and kind of not being embarrassed about kind of, I don't know, um, I haven't answered that question at all. Sheila, talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've never felt embarrassed writing about it. It just doesn't occur to me. I mean, you write about, why would you be more embarrassed to write about one thing than something else? Like, I, And I don't mean to sound so innocent, but it's true. Like, it's, I'm not, I'm not there with, I'm not literally there with a reader. It's there's such a distance between you and and the reader, you as the human. I don't think there's anything to be afraid of putting that in a book. No. But uh either of you. <laughs> um I was wondering how much of this book is a Canadian book? I mean, so much has been written about the Canadian audience's non-absorption of, of the book when it first came out, but Toronto features so prominently, and for me is, is one of the sort of central characters of the book. Um, so I'm wondering how much you saw it as a Canadian novel. Um, I didn't see it as a Canadian novel, but I did see it. Obviously, it takes place in Toronto, and... Um, and yeah, Toronto is one of the characters, and it was so interesting to me. I didn't even think about Toronto as being one of the characters, and then somebody would point out all the things about it that are not like other cities. And, you know, if you're just – I've lived in Toronto my, all my life, so I kind of take it for granted. Like, the place you live in all your life is sort of like the neutral place. You know, it's not the place with characteristics. Every other place has characteristics. So it's nice to me. I mean, I would never have – I would have felt, I mean, too embarrassed to consciously write about Toronto because it's not the kind of place that, to me, is – well, I would have ever thought of as literary, which is such a silly thing to say, but there are certain places that do appear in literature and there are certain places that, that don't. And I didn't think that Toronto was a place that, for me, could. And um, I, li I like that it feels like Toronto. And it feels like Toronto six years ago, even. Like, to me, it seems so specific. The neighborhood that it takes place in, you know, Queen and Dover Court is so different now than it was then. Um, but I didn't think of it as a Canadian book, particularly. Yeah. Uh, I wonder, uh, your confessional style reminds me of the, the humorous aspect of Woody Allen films. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you identify at all with his, uh, even though it might be a male perspective, the Jewish self-absorbed intellectual angst. Yeah, Woody Allen was like my father's favorite filmmaker. And I mean, 
he was like a household god or something. <laughs> so um, I probably saw his films, uh, you know, hundreds of times, like just from my childhood. Um, it's all we, you know, Annie Hall was the, the film that I watched the most in my whole childhood because my father loved it so much. So I, I really appreciate Woody Allen and his humor. And, and uh, I mean, I think he's the greatest. <laughs> you know, I love Woody Allen. And anything that my my brother's actually a stand-up comedian, so he even is more more that more that way, more influenced that way. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say about the self-absorbed <laughs> style. <laughs> <laughs> Can't really see so much. Um, you mentioned earlier that you've sort of regained your uh, enthusiasm for fiction. Yeah. Which felt I, I felt a sort of wave of relief come over me. I don't know why when you said <laughs> that. I think you've kind of been put into the sort of skeptical camp. How, how did your uh, enthusiasm um, come back to you? And also, and is it because the novel is changing? It just came back sort of spontaneously. I mean, I'd been working on this for so long, and then the book was more or less done, and then I. I just wrote a book in a, a week, basically. I was just, and I felt so relieved just to be able to like make characters up and just go. And this was take, took so much consultation with other people, and it was it was so hard on my friendships, and it was so hard on all the people in my life, and it was just such a relief to write, you know, just to sit there and write. Like I think it just came back on a very just on ter in terms of pleasure, you know. And I, um, in reading, yeah, I'm really, really, and I'm really enjoying reading novels now. I mean, it's really like. It was just something I had to do then, I think, and and now I have to. I feel compelled to do. I I understand fiction now. I think I didn't understand why then, and now I understand why in some way that probably fiction. Maybe fiction has changed too, <laughs> but I've definitely changed. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear the question? The question was um, whether I ever considered just abandoning fiction altogether and just writing nonfiction. You know, and why why I hold on to this novel form or hold on to the fictional form while writing this book instead of going into nonfiction. And I, but I like, I, I don't think that I see the world the way that somebody who writes nonfiction does. I don't, I don't have as much faith that I can see the world that objectively and that I can report. I don't have a very good memory. I have to give myself the liberty to make things up. I don't want to be held accountable, you know, in, in the way that nonfiction writers are. And I think that they should be. I mean, all the stuff that's happened when people, you know, write nonfiction and it turns out that they, lied or I mean in fiction you can't lie and I like that I like that nobody could compare my book to the world in that way yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't trust myself to write that kind of nonfiction. Hi. Um, hi this is kind of a variation on the first question I guess um, but I was kind of interested um, Misha in the in your previous book comes across as such a private character Misha yeah yes but it, it seems like getting him involved with this book would have been much harder sell than it would have been would have been with Margot. Right. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about that, or if you were ever like, do you ever worry about an aspect of kind of selling out a friendship by writing about it, or how you kind of overcome that obstacle? Yeah. Well, there's there was Misha didn't Misha was very clear about his boundaries, you know, and everyone was with with this book. But Misha's boundaries were that there was a time when I wanted them. The chairs are where the people go. The book with Misha and this book to be the same book. And he he said you can't do that because the rules are different. In his book, that's that's him talking, and it's the truth. It's it's Misha's voice. There's no invention. And in this book, there's so much invented that if we put the two books together, the things that I said about Misha in, 
in this book could be taken as the truth or the things that he said could be taken as fiction and he just wanted, you know, so I, I respected, he was right, like, they are different rules, they shouldn't be the same book. And, and Misha, he is a very private person and he's a really careful person. He, he's one of the most careful people I know, so in editing the book there were all these great lines like, there was a, he talks about Robert McKee, the guy that wrote the book Story, which is the screenwriter's Bible. And, um, Robert McKee talks about Casablanca as the most beautiful love story. And, and Misha criticizes that. And he says the idea that love is something that you experience when you're far away from the person and idealizing the person. He's talking about what happens at the very end, you know, in the last scene. He said, that's a, that's not love. Like love is what happens when two people are faced with each other every day and, and, and love each other in the midst of complication and, and, strife and all that and he said about Robert McKee he said that that vision of love has ruined probably ruined more marriages than the Nazis and I love that line I thought like that made me so happy when I wrote it down he said we have to take it out like I can't say I can't say that publicly I can't say that about Robert McKee like he's he's not um uh he's not somebody who'll just say you know and everybody that we talked about in the book he had to temper he's a good person um but I don't think that I, I mean, I see it very differently. I would have kept that line in, you know. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Yeah. You talk. Um. Uh. You talked about the, like the collaborative nature of the project, like with other people and other artists. And I, f I found that in the book, you kept coming back to the potential narcissism of the artist and like the shame, I guess, of of pursuing an artistic vocation. So yeah. I mean, how do you? temper that and is collaborative work a way towards that or how do you square the need to create with the feeling that it just might be self-directed well I don't really feel that um I mean I think that's more Margot's position she kind of felt that it was narcissistic and she could be doing more important things in the world and she could be doing things that genuinely help other people but I've never had that hesitation or that feeling like I think that art is important and I don't think it's a waste of time and I don't think it's narcissistic I think it's valuable and uh, worth doing you know and so but yeah, collaborating is a way of getting away from the self, for sure, in a way that, that's interesting. What do you think? Do you feel like it's narcissistic to, to write books? No, not at all. Actually, one of the things I was thinking I really liked about this book is the kind of the belief in art that it shows. Um, on the other hand, I also do like collaborative things, that that's more, you know, that, but that doesn't, that's nothing to do with not believing in art. That's right. kind of different models of art. Um, but yeah, this is strange, because actually one of the things I... I really like about this book as well is the humor. I don't know, we haven't really um, like talked about this. Um, it's slightly difficult to talk about, but um, it was making me think when you made that kind of joke of Misha's, like one of the things I think is wonderful about writing is you can be properly flippant and that that's actually a serious thing to be. Um, and that's only possible in fiction. Um, and it seems to me that there's a kind of belief in art and kind of a sort of serious flippancy hmm. um, that you seem to have. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the that's that all that conversation between Shula and Margot about you have to find the funny and the yeah. artists and and all the all the writers that I that other people seem to like that I always have arguments about that I can't stand just aren't funny enough for me. They're not. There, there has to be so much humor. I mean, this is Woody Allen. Like to me, humor is the truth, right? Yeah. And if you read a book and there's not that kind of humor in it, there's just no. To me, there's not that truth in it. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>